hey man, this is Lord's territory, and you got five seconds to get off. I tell you, you start counting five like a sucker. One, two, three, four. Welcome to another episode of Don't At Me, your fave podcast that explores identity, intersectionality, and what it means to exist when you don't identify as part of the dominant culture. My name is Aya Batonya Avrakasa. I'm very excited to be here with you today. I want to wish you a very happy International Women's Day, especially to all the women and non-binary folk listening. Uh, International Women's Day, as you probably know, is a global day celebrating the social, economic, cultural and political achievements of women, while also marking a call to action for accelerating gender balance. I personally am a big believer in gender equity because I do understand that depending on how your identities intersect, uh, you may have different needs. I do implore you to always consider that when thinking about equality. I always think it's more important to think about equity. But anyway, before I go off on a large tangent, I'm really uh, psyched for the guests that I'll be interviewing today. You may know them from their viral video that came out a few months ago, The Problem with Workness. Ayesha Akambi will be my guest for today. She is a celebrity stylist, writer, and social commentator. Gonna be talking a lot about blackness um, in different senses and contexts, what it means to work in the fashion or styling industry, and of course, the problem with wokeness. Uh, but before we jump into all of that, this is Sampa the Great with Energy featuring Nadim Din Gabisi. You're listening to Don't At Me. Ain't got nothing 
Listen me. I beg you open your ears for any waiting that they say. Waiting that they talk. Na serious talk that they talk go. No bit langa ears speaking. Listen. In this world we deal, members say ya, one day go come when we all go go. Before long, we go meet Mama Godo. When we they meet Mama Godo, tell me, waiting, you go see. We the my life jam nation. You realize all the time we wasting. You realize all the pain we facing. Please pour a cup feminine libation. My gosh, we raising. Please sympathize all the lies we raising. Please realize all the time. Female energy, one shot, two shot, three times sorrows. Carry all the weight of the world on your shoulders. Give a couple crowns to the woman who had bore us. Told us, focus, love and support us. Magical, umbilical, my universe is radical. Introduce the nation to embracing what is factual. Feminine energy, almost mathematical. You can't really sum up what is infinite and valuable. Feminine energy, balance up the indestructible in the vaginal heaven in thine. She sing a melody to pass the time. Give us her energy so she feel mine. If I was astonished by the level of shame. Feminine energy, never shame again. Rain, tamed, brain, praying. Intuition and ambition running through my veins. Pour out the love, let the healing begin. Gain, gain. And I'm here with Aisha Akambi, celebrity stylist, social commentator, and writer. So what are some lessons that you feel that you've learned recently in relation to anything? Maybe what I've learned is that if you travel, if, you, if you're privileged enough to travel, then it doesn't change your perspective on a lot of things. And I think people travel with their eyes closed. Mm. Um, so that's something I've learned. I've learned that I think a lot of people do that um, because... You know, I was in Nigeria in December and a bit of January, and there was just so many things that I was seeing there, and I was just kind of like, yeah, I, I feel sometimes people travel for um, for the aesthetic, mm. <laughs> you know, and not necessarily for, for what's here and what's around, because I think if you do that, yeah, I think it, it really changes your perspective and sometimes your politics even. So what do you feel like you've learned on your travels specifically? I've learned on my travels that maybe particularly in Nigeria is that things hmm, this is an interesting one. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it's a controversial one too. Oh. <laughs> um, 
I don't know. Everywhere I go, I keep relearning that things aren't so black and white, like mm. metaphorically and literally. Yeah, I don't think they are. You know, I, I go to Nigeria and I I look at some of the issues that are happening there, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know. It just it just changes. It just changes the way that I see things. It changes the way that I think about notions of privilege. It changes the way that I think about things to do with with everything. I think that we're talking about at the moment. It changes. But maybe we'll get more into that. Yeah, But I feel that there's a part of travel. I guess it is a cliche, but there mm. is a lot of truth to it. That when you go somewhere, you should learn something yeah. because nowhere is the same. Everywhere right. is different. Exactly. Every bit, like everybody, sort of interacts differently depending on what country you're in mm -hmm. or their cultural sort of values or belief systems and mm. things like that. Um, but we will get into yes. that later. Mm -hmm. But you are a Niger sis, speaking yes. of Nigeria. Mm -hmm. I'm always down for a Niger sis oh, as I too. am one as well. <laughs> I <laughs> checked out your Instagram actually before I came and I was like, oh my God, she's Nigerian. Yes. Amazing. <laughs> um, but you grew up in Southampton. I did. So what was that like? Because I've heard it's a predominantly sort of white yeah. area. Yes. Um, so growing up in Southampton was, you know, when you've only known a certain thing, I guess it was kind of normal to me. Mm. And when you're young, you're very intent on fitting in and being accepted. And I was because of people's projections of what they thought blackness was. Oh God, I've been through this, <laughs> yeah. I feel it. <laughs> and so I remember, you know, like people just inherently thinking that, you know, like I was gonna be the most amazing dancer. Right. Or, you know, just, you know, simple things, things that maybe some people might call positive discrimination. I don't know, but people projected that, you know, I was the best dancer in the school and that I was maybe the strongest, the girl that you should fear the most. So even though I'm five foot zero, nothing, you know, um, people were scared of me. People mm. thought that I was someone that they couldn't fight with. Um, and I don't fight, you know, I've never really had a fight in my life, but, those kind of like projections, I guess at the time I was young, so I didn't mind them, I took them on because within those projections I could be accepted. Yeah. But they weren't who I was, mm -hmm. you know, in any way. And I think they got those perceptions from TV. You know, they didn't know any black people in Southampton, the people that were of color were mixed race and generally mixed race Caribbean. Right. Um, and predominantly from what I remember, like it was their mother uh, that was white. And so, you know, that being, you know, a lot more of a central figure in your life, you know, I think, yeah, I just don't think people were used to a Nigerian girl like me. And even there was one, actually, there was one Jamaican girl, actually, that was in my school, the only other black girl. And because of the, the perceptions that she had seen of Africa, she was actually the one who was mean to me, you know, because I think she wanted to distance herself. Yeah, to fit in. Yeah, yeah. She didn't want the other kids, the other white kids, to think, like, you know, she was that kind of black. You know, mm. I'm not that kind of black. I'm yeah. not the, the dirty kind or the one, the poor kind, you know? Mm. I guess that was her perception as a child. Um, so, yeah, that was interesting. Um, and... I don't know if I, I don't know if I would say it was tough because when you're a kid, you're you're unaware of a lot of things, and I did definitely get racism and things like that. You know, I, I had a kid, I had an arch enemy. He was a ginger kid in school, and I guess you know it's weird because I think because he got bullied too. So he bullied yeah, you, yeah, yeah, right. And so he got bullied, and so I was his target. But then I gave as good as I got. You know, yeah. we were arch enemies. We hated each other. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it would go back and forth, but I guess the way that he would attack me would always be through like my, my black features. So whether right. that be my hair, whether that be my nose, whether that be my lips. And as much as I may say that at the time, I don't think it had much of um, an impact in the sense that I, I can't remember going home and crying and stuff like that. But it properly, when I was young, did affect the way that I saw myself. 
you know, and maybe the way that I, I viewed what beauty could have been. Right. Yeah. It's so funny that you say that because I feel like I've had a very similar experience, even though we live on like opposite yeah. sides of the world. Interesting. Yeah, because I went to a high school that was predominantly white with one other black girl okay. who did definitely wow. distance herself from me. And That's I was like the poor, weird version. And she oh was God. the cool, smart version. Where was she from? Country She was Nigerian. Oh, she was Nigerian too. I know, wow. which was why it was so disappointing. Yeah, interesting. You know, like now we're fine, but yeah. at the time it was really strange. And mm. the fact that my skin is so dark, she was lighter to the skin than me. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of colorism that came into okay, it cool. as well. Yeah, so it was yeah, a very interesting situation. And I feel that I embodied this whole idea of the strong black woman, quote unquote, mm -hmm. because that was something that was placed on me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How did you sort of, I guess, come to terms with that? When did you have that moment in your life where you were like, wait a minute, this is wrong. I'm not going to sort of fall into these stereotypes that people are placing on me. Mm. I'm my own person. I think um, I think also being queer uh, and knowing that from a fairly early age, I think that is something that probably helped in that transition. Um, I was never the traditional image of what maybe people call feminine, mm. you know? And, and when you're young, that's hard because, you know, you don't want to, you don't, you know, when you're young, you don't always want to bring attention to yourself and you don't want people to ask you questions. You don't want people to to potentially um, poke at your sexuality and stuff like that, especially at that point, I hadn't accepted those things about me. And so, but I knew I couldn't be like other people in terms of how I dressed. I knew I wasn't comfortable in what a lot of people would consider traditional femininity. And so I just decided to take myself out of the race, you know. For me, you know, some people kind of say like, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. But I was like, okay, if I can't beat them, then I'm just going to be me. <laughs> you know, I'm that. just going to do something completely different. So I'm not even in that race. I'm not in the same lane, you know. I'm just gonna be my own ball of weirdness. And people won't even expect, you know, me to, to, to do what they're doing or to act how they're acting or to enjoy what they enjoy. And so I think clothing, I think clothing was the first, and maybe that's how I, I led into my career, but I think clothing was the first instance of of me feeling like, I don't know, I had a, I had a defense, you know, and I had an identity within that uh, that was different from other people. And I got confidence through that. Mm -hmm. And now you're a fashion stylist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you've been doing that for how long now? Maybe about 10 years. Wow. Yeah, so yeah. what was your first break? How did this all um, happen? I... I first actually uh, met Labyrinth. Uh, oh, yeah. cool! Yeah, yeah, that yeah, was yeah. that was my first break. Um, and I remember at the time um, I had an ex whose um, brother managed him. And back then, you know, he wasn't famous. He wasn't doing much yet. He was always a producer, you yeah. know, and he was always doing things on the underground. And anyone who was on the the music circuit in London knew who he was, um, but it hadn't taken off yet. And so he was uh, shopping around for a deal at the time. And he was getting hit with a lot of the time that people loved his music and understood it, but they didn't necessarily see him as an artist. You know, right. sometimes with record labels, you know, you can assume that they sometimes they're very ignorant and they want to see a whole package. Yeah. And so I suggested to, to him and his manager at the time, because I was interested in fashion. I didn't study it or anything like that. I did media and cultural studies. I didn't have any formal training in fashion, but I thought mm, I, I knew that the way that I dressed myself made people react to me differently mm. for whatever reason you know that taught me something about the world and, and maybe how fickle the world is you know people because i maybe dressed in a way that people didn't expect a young black girl to dress um, it made people want to give me opportunities people just took extra interest in me 
And so my interest in fashion and style uh, was more about that too, more than it was fashion actually. It was more about the perceptions right. uh, that people give you. And I wanted to be able to see if I could maybe do this for someone else, you know, if I've done it for myself and it makes people want to give me opportunities, how about if I could package this for other people and let's see if maybe black UK music has uh, has the chance to cross over, you know, internationally and, and be better received. So I suggested that I style him, made a mood, I didn't know what I was doing, made a mood board, <laughs> cut some things out of magazines and I was like, yeah, this is what you're going to wear. And they took a chance on me. Um, and he so did. Awesome. Yeah, he, yeah. Did, he, got, he, got, he got signed. And, and I've kind of been working from ever since. Damn, that's so wild. But mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's really cool. Yeah. I love that mm-hmm. so much. But working in the fashion industry, I can imagine it's quite an interesting place to sort of navigate, right? Especially yeah. with recent controversies with like Montclair and mm-hmm. Gucci. Mm-hmm. I feel that racism is quite prevalent within the fashion industry. How do you navigate that as a black woman? You see, I, I would say that I'm more of a commercial stylist than I am a fashion stylist. So okay. a fashion stylist is the type who does work in fashion and, you know, works on like runway shows and things like that. Whereas I work more within music. Okay. I work within like, so music clients and things like that. Because for me, like I said, I don't know if, I was, if I'm as interested in fashion as I am in style. You know, for me, fashion is, is very different. Fashion is that kind of thing that tells people what's on trend who to be, how to be, what size you should be. Yeah. You know, it's very at odds with a lot of what uh, my values are. Um, and so that although I have dipped in fashion in, in some ways at points in my career, it's not an area that I try to stay. Um, but having said that, there are still many instances, maybe not that I face, where I can see uh, instances of blatant you know, racism. There are photographers, for instance, um, in the UK, and probably not just the UK, who don't shoot black skin. Really? No, because they don't know how to light it. Wow. They don't know how to, they, they just don't, that's a thing. Um, maybe <laughs> now, yeah, yeah, maybe now because how the world is yeah. and, you know, we don't necessarily, we're not very forgiving <laughs> on people who no. who can get away with those kind of attitudes. So maybe now I think people might might feel the need to, to improve on those skills or even just like hairdressers who are said to be like, you know, great at everything, but they don't know how to work with black oh, hair. Oh yeah, I've know, definitely come a, across that. Right, yeah. right, that's a, that's a thing that happens and they don't feel that they have to know, um, which I find, you know, interesting because you won't often find a black hairdresser who's worth her salt who does not know how to work with European hair. True, You won't yeah. get that. Um, so, yeah, those types of things happening I found interesting. But take it away, you know, in my industry, take it away from, let's say, maybe like mainstream fashion. I think one of the things that I found interesting being a stylist who works with music artists is you're often um, at the mercy of white record labels, you know, who've signed these artists and, and who have a perception about what they should look like, mm. you know, who they should be, you know, based on their image of these people. And so as a stylist and not a fashion stylist, I personally think that I um, my job is to kind of in order to style people is to is to find out who they are, what their values are, what they want to communicate to the world, regardless of what GQ or Vogue says is cool. But then you have sometimes, you know, I can see people's prejudice or bigotry through who they think this person is, 
Right. You know, and you know, I'll be working with some artists who are, let's say, soul singers or like, you know, more jazz orientated artists, but their record label wants them to look like a rapper. Because yeah, I was <laughs> going to ask, what does a white record label expect? <laughs> soul singer Why? Like? A rapper most Why? of the time. But what do they, I guess, um, expect a rapper to look like? Is this like still the baggy jeans? Well, maybe, and... I guess it's maybe slightly, and I guess in, in the UK, it's, it's that was never necessarily the image. That was a bit more American, mm. but maybe it was you know tracksuits black right. a lot more black clothing and, and when I say black I mean the color yeah um, that type of thing you know I remember when I was working with Labyrinth in the beginning um, he would always whenever spoken about in media he would always be referred to as a rapper always right. you know yeah, he makes is, ballads yeah. you know he makes ballads with like people like Emily Sande and stuff like that and so to see people call him a rapper was was really interesting you know and, and it could really show me how how some people can't see past, you know, their own projections. Yeah, right. Mm. I just, I was having a conversation the other day about the music industry. I was talking mm. with somebody about the fact that Cardi B had won, you know, the best mm -hmm. rap Okay. Award at the Grammys, I think it was. Mm -hmm. I, I rap album. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact of the matter was that she didn't write any of her own music or anything like that. And the person was a bit, I guess, frustrated with the fact that she had won despite the fact that she didn't write any of her own music. Interesting. And we were talking about again, perception and image. And even though, you know, she is black essentially, but she's also do, um, from the Dominican Republic. Okay, I'm, you're telling me, I'm, I'm fairly okay, unplugged, so, so no, I'm, no, I'm listening, I'll fair. take your word. I, I'm like, I don't know if you should take my word for it. No, okay, I feel like no. I think I know, no, but, okay. um, but- I've heard echoes of this, I think. Yeah, yeah, but she's, so it's very interesting that she's been pushed to become this incredible star that people consider a black musician mm. similar to, Oh, what's that guy that she always sings with? He's like a singer. Bruno Mars. Bruno Mars, okay. who emulates a lot of mm -hmm. um, black culture, but is not technically mm -hmm. black. I guess it's always a little strange to me that it's generally more palatable to not be black, but emulate black culture. I hate that people always take the bits that they like from black culture, but they're not willing to take all of what it means to be black living in a post-colonial world where we're constantly dealing with systemic and structural racism. I always find it really interesting that all of the people that are in the power positions are white. And mm. so you saying this about imagery and things like that, um, it all kind of makes sense because it all sort of mm -mm. ties yeah, together yeah. in a way. It, it does. Um, and then at the same time, I think we also have to, you know, I said I'm unplugged for a reason, you know, I, I genuinely Smart. try to stay unplugged <laughs> because I, um, yeah, I, I really feel that sometimes like a constant exposure to certain images um, changes your perception of yourself. Totally. Um, and so unless I can relate to something, you know, and I can't say that I do relate to Cardi B, um, I try mm, not to know. Neither can I, yeah. <laughs> I try not to know. But I think one thing I do find interesting about those people and those types of images and and let's say you know uh the uh the lighter skinned versions of um lots of popular black artists mm. is that they are still very heavily supported and, and adored and loved by black communities true you know what i mean like we are some of the people that help to put them there Most you know i always think to myself in, in times like this where we are in sort of like if you like to think maybe a new black renaissance you know there are so many i can think of so many like 
black female rappers, you know, who have emerged, who are incredible actually, um, that don't really get much attention. You mm. know, someone like No Name or someone yeah, like true, actually. Yeah, Tierra no Wack or yeah. someone like um, even Cupcake, you know, that's she's a bit left, you know, but still she's she's, <laughs> she's an, still amazing. Yeah, she's yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. She's an interesting person. But people like that aren't actually paid much attention to. And I think that's interesting. I think it's interesting, but I do think it's related to their skin colour. Maybe, honest, but then, but it's also by people like us. You but that's know the problem. I mean. Comes back yeah. to this whole conversation about colorism, right? Right. 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 It it's like within, and I guess that is um, an after effect or of colonization yeah. of this sort of wanting to center whiteness or thinking that being lighter is better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So even sometimes, like I feel the darker the skin you have, sometimes it can be a bit of a um, in a sense, mm, it's both a curse and a blessing. Mm. Like I love my skin so yeah, much, yeah. but I've seen the way that people treat you, the assumptions mm. they make about you simply because of the color of your skin, even within mm-hmm. community, which yeah. is I guess the sad right, right. sort of truth that you've got to live with. Yeah, yeah. Blackness in Australia, I don't know if you're aware about this, but it's a very different thing mm-hmm. than it is in other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. So recently, Tanahasi Coates was here, and I think it got a bit of a shock um, understanding what blackness means in Australia. Because to be black in Australia is not just to be um, of an African uh, heritage; mm-hmm. it also means you're Aboriginal, Torres Strait okay. Islander, or Pacific um, mm-hmm. Islander as well. And even though your skin may not be black, if you are Aboriginal, but maybe your skin appears to be white, you are still considered black. That's so cool. B L A K. Okay. And sometimes if you're talking about everyone that I've just mentioned, it would be B L A and the C in brackets, okay. and then K. So that's sort of a co- oh, that's collective blackness. I find that I find that cool because. You know, there are a lot of places in in the world where they are historically mixed with black people. Let's say like a lot of the Latin American communities. However, they don't they don't identify as black. Mm. You know, they don't. They are very um, reluctant to do that um, because, like we said, you know, colonization. Yeah. And I guess a, a lot of us feel that uh, I don't know to be light or to be white is right. <laughs> you know, in whatever <laughs> way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a lot of people reject that. So for me to hear that there are people walking around with white skin who embrace blackness is, is very is very cool. I see you walk my way with that look on your face, yeah. You think I care why you say when it's clear I make you red Why you have to go to that now? Why you take it too far? Why you wanna be cold? Always taking a stab in the dark Why you wanna make me suffer? Why you gotta be so tough for? What's up? Why can't that be enough? You have found me in my
so that was the latest track from one of my Sydney faves, Milan Ring. It's called Step Back. If you are not across her music, I would highly recommend checking it out. She's also going on tour very soon. I've just booked my tickets for her Sydney show, which is 27th of April. I believe it will be at the Lansdowne. If you're around, come through. It will definitely be a vibe. I know that there's a lot of contention around the term feminist. A lot of people choose not to identify with the word. But, you know, one might argue that All About Women is for people who do identify as feminists, especially given the subject matter. Would you say that you identify as a feminist? And what does it mean to you to be a feminist in 2019? Feminism means a lot to me, yeah, I think. And I never thought it would... I haven't always been this way. Right. I remember being young and not getting it. Mm. You know, maybe for all of the reasons that I didn't connect to my own femininity made it hard for me to connect to feminism at one stage. But then when I realized the many reasons why I didn't connect to my femininity, that made feminism more important to me. Yeah, right. You know, because I realized I didn't connect to my femininity because I had this very uh, narrow definition of what it means to be a woman or what it means to be feminine. And when I realized where these ideas come from, you know, these are very patriarchal ideas, yeah, then it was crucial, you know, feminism became crucial. And not only just that, like, you know, women are are 50% of the world, so, um, you know, race is one thing. And men to have, you know, 50% of the world to varying degrees, all kind of like um, suppressed and repressed and oppressed by this same structure is, uh, is heartbreaking to me. Yeah, it's absolutely awful. Who are some of your favourite feminist authors or people that you look up to? Um, Let's think. You know, I, I, you know, all of all of the black women, you know, have definitely in, informed me in some way, from people like Bell Hooks to Audre Lorde to yeah, even right. Chimamanda. Oh, uh, I love speaking my language. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who else? But then even people who may not necessarily have been directly ever called themselves feminists. And I imagine this woman probably wouldn't call herself a feminist, but growing up, she was important to me. Someone like Lauren Hill. Yeah, great. You know, um, who may not call herself a feminist. I can imagine that she wouldn't. However, she embodies that. Mm. You know, she embodies that spirit for me. And a lot of the the black women, musician-wise, that I grew up on, Indiari, um, and people like Missy Elliott, people like The Brat, again, never necessarily... Um, consciously ever spoke about feminism but were very feminist in their expression you know in terms of like the way that they presented themselves and and, and kind of rejecting certain gender norms so yeah I totally agree Mm -hmm. so the theme for this year's International Women's Mm -hmm. Day 2019 is balance for better how do you believe we can help forge a more gender balanced world Hmm. I think we can forge a more gender balanced world when we start raising our sons and daughters the same when we start kind of unlearning certain myths when we start when we stop saying that this is for boys or this is for girls you know this doesn't exist really this is nothing but our imaginations um i think when we can stop doing that um i think that we'll we'll get closer to to having a world that is um less less colored by gender and and gender limitations and androgyny as well like so i think and it's happening anyway but you know more sort of gender neutral clothing and Mm. things like that more you know someone like me um i feel like it's uh 
you know, I, although very much in my essence, I'm, I'm non-binary, let's say, very much so, you know, like I'm very androgynous, like a lot of places I go, people think I'm a dude completely. Um, so I get misgendered quite a lot. However, as much as I think I embody uh, a certain non-binary identity, I use the pronoun she and her as a, as a way of affirming and reminding those who come in contact with me that yes, women do look like this too. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And for me, I, I think that's that's something that I'm I'm keen to push. That like there is no such thing as what a real woman looks yeah, like or I what a that. real man looks like. <laughs> I hate that um, so much. You know, I'd really love to. You know, actually, I did the shoot actually recently in New York, and it was actually really beautiful. I'd never seen anything like this. And you might know of the kid. His name is Desmond. He's 11. Oh, Desmond is amazing. Oh, my yes, God. Yes, I love Desmond. He was in a shoot with me. Amazing. Uh, and I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that he was 12 and that, like, his mum was there. And she just completely allows him to be what he is. It's beautiful. You know? And, you know, I don't know if he's gay. Or no, I don't think that matters. You no. know, it's not... I don't think... I don't think I don't think they have to have those conversations because no. she's allowing him to be who he is. And and I think that was really beautiful. I think that was the first time that I've never seen anything like that. Um, and, and for me, I think that's the wave. Yeah, I think that is how we we arrive somewhere. Yeah. No, definitely. A lot mm -hmm. of people are saying that the future is non-binary. Interesting. And I do agree with it to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. I think that people should just be allowed to exist as they feel that they want to exist. Yeah. So I guess... Let's go on to what you'll be talking about, mm. the problem with wokeness. So mm. you had this viral video. Mm. Do you want to maybe just quickly talk us through for maybe a couple of people that might not have watched it yet? And I'll make yeah. sure I put links to it as well. Um, cool, yes. Um, uh, the problems of wokeness. So I, I did that video um, based off of tweets. I think I made a tweet once um, that maybe did the rounds. And I think I said, wokeness is, is robbing people of compassion and replacing it with moral superiority. And that seemed to do the rounds. And then this company approached me um, and asked if I wanted to make a video about that. And every now and then, I, I would say on Twitter, I try to I try to weigh in from what I see. Yeah, yeah. For, weigh in for what I, uh, I'm very interested in the why, not the what. I yeah. agree, I I'm, feel the same. I'm interested in why things are happening more than what is happening. And so I was seeing the way that conversations were being shut down and people aren't allowed to speak on this issue. And even if you are, you know, of the same race or of the same sexuality or of the same anything, but you have a varying different opinion from the majority, you know, how you're then relegated to the right. You know, you must be the opposition now. You are the enemy. Um, I was looking at cancel culture. I was looking at all of those types of things. And yeah, I guess that's where it came from. Because I think I was understanding, maybe from my own mistakes and things like that, that no one's perfect. No, of course You not. know, and no one is politically or morally pure. And, and as much as I'm definitely for attacking the system and calling out oppression and, and attacking institutions and even turning our backs on institutions, maybe more importantly, this, the way that many things play out online didn't seem like they were the most helpful. Mm. You know, and so that's where it came from. So I made this video talking about the issues and how things have maybe sometimes they can feel like a school canteen where people are grouping on on what they are rather than who they are. Um, and I don't think that is is the goal. And when I think about a lot of the feminists that I am inspired by, you know, people like Maya Angelou or people like Bell Hooks, you know, like they write with a lot of love. They write with a lot of compassion. 
you know. Um, they do, as much as uh, someone like Bell Hooks can be very critical. But, you know, I, I did read a book recently, I think it's Men and the Will to Change. And this was her, I don't know, she just, she wrote about feminism, centered a lot actually on men and men's issues um, and how women even play a part into that. Um, but she just wrote from a really compassionate place. And I think that, you know, even when I think of someone like Malcolm X, who at one stage was potentially what some people might perceive to be anti-white, I wouldn't have called him anti-white, but he was pro-black, let's say, and pro-doing things for ourselves. But, you know, he never wanted to work with white people at a certain stage. And it was only when he went to Mecca and saw white people praying and saw that he could be brothers with these people that he came back and kind of had a, re a, a, a difference and a change of heart. And he became much more of a threat that way. You know, when he was only um, talking about the issues and the struggles around black people, you know, they let him do his thing. But as soon as you're kind of talking for all oppressed people, once he saw that, you know, that maybe based on like a class kind of solidarity, he became much more of a threat. And so I think I'm only leaning on the people that I've read when I, um, when I talk about compassion, when I talk about empathy. And I think that's needed in activism. I think that's needed in progression. And I don't see that often. So, no, I definitely yeah. agree with that. I've had similar conversations. Right. Because I think there is a lack of empathy and there's always ownership mm -hmm. or, you know, I think you spoke on Oppression Olympics that's mm -hmm. sort of trying to... Mm -hmm. Outsuffer someone. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be really dangerous. Oh my God. Completely. And I do agree with empathy. However, I do think sometimes, uh, I don't know, like when you've been going through something your entire life mm -hmm. and you've been empathetic to people to a certain extent, or you've been sympathetic to people that maybe don't understand what you're personally going through, and I'm speaking as mm -hmm. an individual, as a black mm -hmm. woman, it can be hard sometimes to be consistently empathetic, especially when you're going through this set. It's almost like you're going around in a circle constantly mm -hmm. with different people mm -hmm. that you meet. Mm -hmm. So how would you sort of, I guess, counter that? Like, mm -hmm. would you say that you're always empathetic even when you've, okay, if you're having a conversation with one person mm -hmm. and you've had this same conversation with that same person like three or four times, because mm -hmm. this is what happened to me actually with your video. Mm -hmm. There was someone that I knew who does happen to be white and we always had these conversations about race mm -hmm. and he didn't seem to understand how I guess he had this sort of interest in taking photos of black people whenever he'd go to Africa mm -hmm. and that's fine like mm -hmm. <laughs> you do you mm -hmm. but the problem was he was going to every single part of Africa right so both the richer and the poor mm -hmm. parts yet he'd only take photos of the poor parts to put on his Instagram mm -hmm. and I found that really problematic mm -hmm. so I'd be like look you know I think you should show a holistic view mm -hmm. of Africa not just this side that we're all used to seeing all mm -hmm. the time like the impoverished children in the village mm -hmm. like why don't you also show your rich African mm -hmm. friends that are out here being really successful mm -hmm. because it, there's two sides to every story right mm -hmm. and he'd get really frustrated with that and tried to act that I act like I was morally superior because at one point I was like I'm just gonna have to eject myself from this whole situation because I'm frustrated and repeating myself to you constantly mm -hmm. so what would you do in a situation like that do you feel that you still have that empathy to continue that conversation mm -hmm. I try not to argue with anyone committed to misunderstanding me right you know and a lot of people are committed to their own ignorance or a lot of people are committed to their own worldview and they can't see past that however in a situation like that I would have to find out his intention you know I have to find out his intention for wanting to to show poor Africa is his intention to be holistic or is his intention to raise awareness about poverty 
And if his attention is to raise awareness about poverty, well, then I may be able to see why that is the lens that he wants to show. There's an, there's an interesting debate actually happening in the UK at the moment with Comic Relief. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard about it, but Comic Relief is a charity um, that centers on Africa. Um, so they do the red nose stuff? Yes, yeah, yeah kind okay, of, yeah, do, yeah. yeah. So it's a, it's a, yeah, so centers on Africa and, you know, each year they have this day where people call in and raise lots of money to, for this, um, for lots of different countries in Africa, starving children, whether it be for, uh, shelters, whether it be for clean water, all of these types of things. Anyway, recently a white, a white uh, documentary presenter, um, Stacey Dooley, was in Africa doing this show, and she took a picture with a black child, um, and it went off on the <laughs> internet. It went completely, completely, completely off. Um, and there were two sides to the debate. You know, some people were saying that, um, like what you said, some people were saying that. Why do you keep showing this image of Africa? You know, why is this the the only image that you keep wanting to represent? Um, other people were saying that Stacy was using the child as an as an accessory, sort of like white savior. Yeah. yeah. So this is this is the word that actually was around this topic. Right. And my thing is, like I said, I'm interested in in the why and not necessarily the what. And so for me, and that's not to condone or condemn Stacey, as in the white woman who was in this situation. But when I thought about, you know, because I think a lot of, you know, even the politician, a guy called David Lammy spoke about this, you know, he said, we need to stop this white savior complex. We need to stop um, people doing this because this is a lot of people's first image of Africa and it's really um, disheartening. But then I, I think if we take it away from ourselves, and even what I'm saying is very hard, I think, what I'm about to say is very hard okay. and it doesn't have to necessarily be agreed to. But I think it's about, I think with my children, if I happen to have children that are raised in, out of Africa, um, comic relief cannot be their first image of Africa. That is my responsibility as a parent, yeah. that it can't be, you know? However, there is um, a situation with poverty and not even just that, you know, this, this charity also looks after children in need as well. So when they do the children in need, not children, yeah, when they do the children in need one, that's about um, children with disabilities right. of all races, um, whatever it may be. So in that situation, it may not be appropriate to show healthy children because how do they raise money for healthy children? You know, of course. You know? so equally here in this situation, for me, it's kind of like, yeah, I would love I would love to, um, I would love to, let's say, show both sides of, of the equation when it comes to the, the issues that are happening in Africa. However, like the people who are, the people who are um, living comfortably, the people who are living above the poverty line is, is minute compared to the people that aren't, Yeah, you know? And, and that's the reality. And whether that is about colonization Maybe the way that colonization started that, it's not what's maintaining that at the moment. We both know that, that at the moment, there are many people who look like you and I who help that situation, you know what I mean, to be what it is. And I think that we have to be able to sometimes see beyond our own pain because those people have it so much worse than I do, you know? And for me to kind of speak, because if that, if those images are harrowing enough to, to make people of all races you know, want to um, contribute, that's a, it's a helpful thing. I don't know if it's a good thing. It's a helpful thing, right. you know. Um, 
So I don't know. Sorry, that kind of went on a tangent. No, no. But like, interesting. I think for your friend, I think I'd need to know his intention. Right. Yeah, what's your See, intention? The thing though, my thing with intention is mm. I think a lot about intention versus impact. Because yeah. I think sometimes people might have good intentions, like, mm. you know, that whole saying, yeah. the road to hell is paved Babe. with good intentions. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that the impact is going to be positive mm. on mm. the people no matter what you're doing. And mm -hmm. so sometimes I feel like it goes a bit deeper than that. And mm -hmm. I understand what you're saying about, mm -hmm. you know, supporting people in different countries, but I also think sometimes people need to look at their own country first. Mm -hmm. It's like, Africa as a continent, sure, there are people that are suffering mm -hmm. there, but there are also people within the UK that are suffering. Mm -hmm. There are also people within Australia that are mm -hmm. suffering that might need mm -hmm. assistance. So why are we always looking at other countries mm -hmm. as, although they do need help, there's so much, I guess, evidence that sort of shows that sometimes rather than like that whole idea of teaching the person to fish as opposed mm -hmm. to like just giving them mm -hmm. fish mm -hmm. wouldn't it be more useful to sort of work on things oh like no that? 100%. i guess the thoughts that i always have with no like i think that. so i think you're right 100 percent. however i think i've got to a point where it's like because that's what i want to do you know like for me uh, at least a lot of I, I don't know if i'd call it activism but at least a lot of the work that i i want to do is, is, is situated and rooted in Nigeria. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Um, and that's where my heart is. Um, and yeah, I, I believe that we should um, be giving people the tools um, to be able to, to be self-sufficient and, yeah. and things like that. Um, however, I can't expect people who don't walk in my shoes in the same way that I don't quite, exp I don't, I'm not, I'm not fully um, understanding, let's say, of the, of the Syrian plight of the complexities of that right. and things like that. And so if I tried to somehow, I don't know, just help, I might get that wrong. I might get it wrong because I'm not of that race. I'm not in that conflict. I, I don't know everything there, you know? And so there is a chance that I can be ignorant. And so maybe I don't expect, I don't expect certain people to know. I don't expect certain people to know certain things. And that doesn't mean that they can't, we can't educate them, but I don't know. I maybe it's a, a detachment thing that I have. And when I say detachment, I don't mean uh, an indifference, but because maybe it's my own self-care, I can't, I can't necessarily um, afford any more to to internalize other people's ignorance. No, understandable. Yeah. I, do you believe that it's the role of the oppressed to educate the oppressor? I don't you feel that people should go out and sort of educate? Themselves? I think we all have to educate yeah. each other because I only know what I know because someone wanted to do that right you know i'm it was this wasn't bestowed in my head i didn't wake up like this i know what i know because someone sat down and wrote to educate the world some so people that were oppressed wrote to educate the world i will write to educate other people privileged people may write to educate people on certain things mm. so i think but every individual no 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 but i just think that education for me and i know this isn't a popular view but no education for me is it's fundamental. I don't think that I have to do it at the risk of my own sanity. I don't think I have to do it at the risk of um, my uh, at my sanity or at my peril in any way. But I just think that, yeah, I can't, I would need to know certain things about, even though I can read on the internet certain things, but that is not going to be as, as useful as the Pakistani lived experience. Someone telling me about that, someone being patient enough when I'm in the wrong to say, actually, Aisha, this is how it is. I know this is what it says on Wikipedia, and I know this is what the media is portraying, but actually, on the ground here, this is how it is. And I think if we can do that, I think, again, we're in a, we're in a more helpful space. Not necessarily good or bad, because 
ideally we we do hey we have the knowledge or maybe we'd seek these things but we don't yeah. we all have a walking encyclopedia we're all with an encyclopedia constantly it's called google babe right we all have it but we don't all use it no that's true we don't and we don't use it to find out what's happening in syria we don't use it to find out what's happening in pakistan we don't use it to do all of these things you know because everyone to some degree especially outside of the what they call the western world is 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 suffering um but we don't all do it So yeah, I think it does take people even the internet. We all know this language because some people were wanted to educate. We yeah. all know these buzzwords maybe what you can call them now because people when they were in the thick of their oppression, they spoke about these things. And they didn't say actually, well, this is my situation. Um and it's up to you to go and out and 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 do no from everything that I've read. You know what I mean? Audrey Lord said, Audrey Lord said in one of her books, she said the only people speaking to each other, the only black and white people speaking to each other in 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 segregated um civil rights era were black and white lesbians. You know? Like they were the only people who were trying to and it doesn't mean there wasn't tension. It doesn't mean that at all, but I don't know, we have to start somewhere. No, definitely. I don't disagree. Yeah, yeah. Interesting thoughts. I yeah, like yeah. that. So, how did you feel when your video went viral? Uh-huh. Oh, that was an interesting one. Okay, <laughs> well, um I'm quite an introverted person anyway, and I keep myself to myself for the most part, and I never expected it to do that. So, when I first did it, I immediately wanted to retract. And not necessarily because of what I said, but I'm just like that with everything. <laughs> you know, just I think I it's, feel that. Yeah, yeah, it's a typical creative thing. You don't like anything that you do. You think yeah. you could do it better. Blah blah, yeah. blah 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 blah. So I wanted to retract, but then I was like, Are you sure you do this with everything? You know what? Let it go. Put it out there. Just don't give it any attention. <laughs> that was my thing. Don't give it any attention. If anything, just give it one retweet, and that's it. And uh, I think I did that. Didn't really see much about it, but not too long after, maybe two weeks after, I started noticing that I was getting a lot of followers. And and that is somewhat usual, but not this amount. Um, and I didn't understand where it was coming from. And then I was getting people compliment me and tell me nice things. And again, where is this all coming from? I never use Facebook, but I thought let me let me check Facebook and see what's happening. And at that point, I think the video had been up for maybe four weeks, and it had had maybe about twelve thousand views at the time, but a thousand comments and a thousand shares. and i looked through the comments and and most of the people who were um commenting uh, were white and i didn't know how to handle that and i was very um i was very panicked i was very scared you know because as much as i my thing is for everyone i would say my message and what i bring whatever that is is for everyone my angelou says it better she says i speak to the black experience but i'm always talking about the human condition mm, i love that and i really resonate with that And so that's what I do. I'm always speaking to the black experience first. Yeah. Um however, the human condition. And so when I saw that it was predominantly white people who'd really loved this video, I was anxious because I understand where I'm coming from, but I know that other people may not understand where I'm coming from because I know it's very easy to say, oh all these millennials, oh everyone's so narcissistic, yeah. oh just get over yourself. <laughs> oh, you know, back in my day. Oh, you know, I get it. You know what I mean? It's 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 such an archetype. Um and I didn't want what I'm saying to come off in the same way. But when I was seeing that the majority of the people resonating with it were people that weren't like me, um I believed that that's what they took. Um and I was upset. I was upset and I cried. <laughs> I remember calling my mom and I was like, "Mom, I don't know what I've done." <laughs> like, I've done and my mom actually my mom has never really cared about much of the stuff that I've put out on the internet, but she loved right. this. This is oh, the first really? thing that she's oh, ever loved. Lovely. 
and a lot of my Nigerian family. The first thing they shared, loads of people. And I said, Mum, I don't know what I've done. I feel like I might be an Uncle Tom. <laughs> um, and she said, what do you mean? And I was like, I've said this stuff, you know, like, and she was like, but do you believe it? I was like, yeah. But she was like, um, but I was like, but black people, they're, they're not, you know, they're not saying anything to yeah. me, you know, like, they're not resonating with me. But it's like, that'd be but, scary. But she was like, but do you believe it? You know, and I was like, yes. She was like, and this is resonating with me. This is resonating with lots of people, you know, like, live your truth. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you have to be who you are. I can't be, I don't want to be swayed by the current, you know. Um, I often think that popular ideas don't age well. No, I don't disagree with that. Yeah, and I have to, as best as I can, leaning on the shoulders of the people that have informed me, um, this is the way that I believe that we can can move forward. Um, and so she managed to calm me down. It took a while. It took a while before I got comfortable with that video. Yeah. You know, I only put that video out on my Instagram maybe three weeks ago. Right, okay. Yeah, you know, it took a long, long time for me to get comfortable with that video because I, um, and I, you know what, so many things happened. I had a lot of people from Australia, actually. Um, there was this band, I really like it. There's a band called Sticky Fingers. Oh. <laughs> exactly, but I didn't know. Yeah. But I didn't know. But I didn't yeah, know. Okay, I'm like, you know now. Yeah, I know now. <laughs> but there was a band. So like, it was one song, actually. I, there's this one song that I like called How To Fly. Yeah. And I remember like some of those guys followed me and I was like, wow, this is, this is interesting. Where's it coming from? I researched and then I saw. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, people who've caught controversy, not just those guys, a lot of celebrities who've caught controversy, you know, um, started following me, mm. you know? And then I thought, this is, this is a very, people on the right started messaging me. Oh, God. However, but this was a very interesting position for me because it was kind of like, here's me, I'm not on the right, you know, like, and here, I don't know, these people are clearly, I don't know, I think it's a very interesting and somewhat powerful um, position to be in because I um because the thing is like I don't know I'm still trying to work it out you know I'm not I'm I'm, I'm unwilling to kind of I'm un, I'm very unwilling to do this whole thing of like if you engage with someone from this then you are that I'm not doing that I don't think that's yeah, the yeah. case yeah but I do think that if you can listen to someone like me who's completely opposite to you, and I can also make you understand that outrage, because a lot of people don't understand the where the outrage culture comes from. I do, you know, like I do when you've internalized certain lies about yourself for your entire life. Yeah. You've believed that you are something that you are not. You've believed that you are subhuman because of how the world's treated you. Mm. I call wokeness like stages of grief, right. you know? Like the first stage is anger, it's outrage. And of course it has to be, you've been lied to, yeah. you know? Um, it's the same with a Christian who may lose their religion, you know, after a while, you know, they're quite angry, they're very angry at religion and they're, they're talking to everyone and this is this and that is that. Um, and then comes other things, understanding, curiosity, mm -hmm. acceptance. Funny that you should say that. I was talking to a friend about this, but we were talking more in the realm of decolonization. Okay. As you know, you come into your own, as I talked about before, growing up in a sort of white area for yeah. most of my youth. When I moved overseas, it was the first time I'd met black creatives. Yeah. And then I joined this decolonization book club yeah. and I went through those stages, yeah, like yeah. really angry at like right. everything. Like, right. why is this all happening? What's yeah. up with this? And then the sadness of being frustrated right. of, 
being misunderstood. Right. Um, so no, I do completely understand that. Yeah. But with your video, like, you know, you're saying that people from the right are starting to follow you, mm. problematic faves Mm-mm. that are out here, celebrities are starting to follow you. Mm-mm. And don't you think that was them sort of interpreting the video, your video, a way that they wanted, especially given that you are mm-hmm. a queer black woman, so mm-hmm. you are a minority within a minority, you mm-hmm. could say. So they were sort of weaponizing your words for mm-hmm. their benefit. Like, how did you react when you were interacting with them? I was just, I think I've made, you know, and I've had some conversations with people that I would not agree with politically. Right. Um, and I've just made sure that they understand um, because the thing is, I think what happens with me is, you know, because I'm I'm not very quick to condemn people for anything, if I'm honest. I mean, yes and no, as in, I'm pretty much unplugged. That is my condemnation of most things. I'm unplugged. I don't, I try not to give my energy to many things because I don't agree with so much. I don't agree with so much. However, on a more human to human level, and when I think about who I have been at certain points and, and things like that, you know, I'm very much a big hippie as well. I can't lie, I'm probably a lot more hippie like than I am political. Um, I just, I think what people see in me is that you can talk and I'm not going to judge you immediately, but we're going to talk, you know, we're gonna, you're gonna understand it from that side as well, you know, and you're not going to use me as a mouthpiece, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm under, I understand, I get a lot of people would wanna do that, yeah. but no, it's not going to happen, I mean, I mean, fair enough, people are doing it. People are sending my video and doing what they want with it, but it's just like anything. I can't really control people's interpretation. No, you can't. You know, like I can only speak uh, my truth. Um, and I think the more work that I do, um, a lot of people eventually who may have bought into me because, you know, they think I'm their mouthpiece will eventually come off. <laughs> you know what I mean? They will. <laughs> yeah, but equally, and on both sides, more, yeah. on both sides, you know yeah. what I mean? There has been a lot of black people who may have, you know, I, I get it sometimes. I go into certain spaces with black people and they want me to have a certain opinion. I can feel that. They want me to feel the exact way that they do. And yeah. if I don't, they turn on me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and I this is that. the thing that I don't like on all sides. No, I agree. Yeah, I don't like it. It's uncomfortable for it's me. You know, stop trying to pull me into, you know, people are thinking, considering we're in a gender revolution, we're thinking very binary. Yeah. You're right or wrong. You're left or right. You're progressive or unprogressive. Um, and it's just not realistic to me. No. So at the moment, I just feel like I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm always trying to, not in a centrist way, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to observe, I'm just trying to be curious, and I'm just trying to work out why people are racist, why someone is transphobic, what lives underneath of these things, because I want to, because I think we concentrate on a lot of the symptoms, but not the disease, you know? And, and I want to look at the disease, and I think that's how we, um, uh, we, can, we, can, we can kill it from its root. Oh, most definitely. Mm. Thank you so much for coming in, Aisha. It's mm-hmm. been fantastic. Thanks. Don't want to take any more of your time mm. up. But so you're going to be speaking this Sunday at All About Women. Mm-hmm. And yeah, enjoy the rest of Thank your time you. in Australia. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks again to you for tuning in to this International Women's Day special. I want to leave you with somebody that I consider a strong woman of colour, feminist, an absolute star, Princess Nokia, with a track of her latest album, Hands Up, which comes from Metallic Butterfly. Have a lovely afternoon, evening, day. I don't know what time you are listening to this, but I will speak to you again next week.